me now. There it is. Too much of me now. Yeah. Uh, no, thank you guys so much for supporting our family. My son, um, his his surgery went well, and he is recovering well. And uh, we want to say thank you for all of your prayers and support, and the abundance of food that you've given to us. Um, you've given to us so much food we can't store it all at our house. Uh, thankful that we could use the the storage uh, here at church, the the freezer. We still have quite a bit of food left. Uh, we love you guys, and we know you guys love us. Um, this morning, um, as we enter into the new year, um, I thought it would be appropriate to look at a faith that runs. And so let's turn over to our text this morning, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. And again, we're going to look at a faith that runs. (coughs) The text reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we can meet together this week, that we can come together and sing of your greatness, and that we can sit under the preaching of your word now. And I pray that you would use your word this morning to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness, just as you did with me in my preparation this past week. Lord, help us not to be distracted this morning. Spirit, open our ears that we can hear your truth, our eyes so that we may see your truth, our minds so that we would know your truth, and most importantly, open our hearts so that we would love truth. Use this truth in our lives to make us more like you, we pray. Amen. Again, this morning, we're going to look at a faith that runs And on the subject of running and racing, do you realize just how many different racing events there are in the world? There's tons of them. Um, There's horse racing, dog racing, camel racing. Believe it or not, there's cockroach racing. Um, Humans race, right? Um, Did you know, okay, that just, I think it's in North Carolina, there's a race where they run 2.5 miles to a box of, of glazed donuts, a dozen. And you have to eat all 12 donuts and then run 2.5 miles back to the, to the starting line. And if you throw up, okay, if you barf, you're disqualified. <laughs> now, that's a race that I think I could do like in a team. Like, um, it, it, like if I could team up with Jeff Bentz who runs for miles, Um, He could run the miles and I could eat his donuts because I can eat for miles, all right? Um, Or or how about Finland's wife-carrying race? 
I had, a, I had a seminary friend from Finland. His name was Miska uh, Wilhelmsen. Probably uh, didn't deliver that quite, quite great. But, um, but the, he talked to me about this famous race that they had out there where husbands would carry their wives through this rigorous uh, obstacle course. It was like two, it's 277 um, uh, yards or something like this. And they're, they're jumping over beams and running through gigantic puddles all while having their wives on their back. And they take it very seriously. Um, they, all the women, all the wives are weighed before the, the event. Uh, they have to weigh, I think, over 108 pounds to, quali- like to, to, to run. And so, uh, <coughs> but that, that, that would be something to, uh, we should do that here at like church, at a, at a picnic every year. Wouldn't that be humorous? Um, another race that I came across is a robot camel race in uh, Dubai. Every year, there are tons of people who compete and watch this race. It's essentially just camels racing, but the twist is they have this little robot that sits on top of the camel that kind of guides them and directs them, and it has a little walkie-talkie so that the owners can speak to their camel. And if you watch the YouTube of this, you know, sometimes the camels listen and sometimes they don't. It's, it's quite, it's, it's interesting. In any event, no matter if you are carrying your wife remote control racing your camel, or donut racing, uh, all serious racing demands serious preparation in order to achieve the goal of finishing, especially if you're seeking to finish first. Now, all this running talk uh, may excite some of you that have set your New Year's resolution on, on running and, and, and fitness and losing weight. However, for others that are in this room, the thought of running, fitness, or losing weight is probably the last uh, thing that you would want to, that it's not exciting at all for you. And I get it. I get it. But no matter where you are on the spectrum of running or racing, one thing is abundantly clear from the scripture. These words that we just read in Hebrews 12 are divinely inspired by God. And this is not the only passage in Scripture that likens the Christian life to running a race. We could look at 2 Timothy 4, 7, where Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Or we could go to Galatians 5, uh, 4, or excuse me, 5, 7, where Paul addresses the Galatians who were getting sucked back into Judaism and legalism, when he says, you were running a good race, who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Or lastly, 1 Corinthians 9.24, where Paul seeks to encourage the, the Corinthians, when he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. So running the race is the divinely inspired metaphor that we will give our attention to this morning. So if you're wearing Crocs this morning, as many I saw were, uh, make sure you put them into sport mode. You're going to need them. Um, Now, since we are parachuting into the epistle of Hebrews, context is of the utmost importance. It always is. Context is key. Without looking at the setting, the background, or the context, we can miss the author's intended meaning of this passage. Um, As far as the the author of Hebrews goes, we're not quite sure who wrote Hebrews, but we know that the book of Hebrews is addressed primarily to the Hebrews, to the Jews. It is believed that this book was written in the the, uh, 
the late first century A.D. during the reign of the persecution of the Roman Emperor Nero. Nero was the emperor who blamed the, the great fires of Rome on the Christians. So the intended audience of this letter would have been to the Jews who had left Judaism and now faced this intense persecution. I listened to a pastor a few years ago preach through the book of Hebrews, and he described the purpose of Hebrews this way. The epistle of the Hebrews is written to Hebrews to teach Hebrews that they should no longer be Hebrews, to get those Hebrews to focus on the ultimate Hebrew, Jesus Christ. I thought that was well said. Um, Hebrews. Um, I want you to, for a second though, understand that the original audience of this letter would have faced great pressures. Great pressures on being Christians. It could have cost them their lives. You know, I just want you for a moment to put your, your feet into their sandals, if you will, thinking about, you know, the family members that could have disowned them, their mothers or, or fathers never wanting to talk to their kids again because they started to follow Jesus. They're maybe losing their friends as well or their jobs or having a hard time getting a job because they were a Christian. And on top of all of that, now, Nero, the emperor of Rome, is killing Christians in the worst way imaginable. He is burning them and lighting them on fire. And so, I'm sure this is the case that some self-proclaimed Christians at this time may have started to depart. Others may have been thinking about departing while others were scared and afraid to live out their faith publicly in a hostile world. So how does the writer of Hebrews counter this, this fear and doubt that could have been setting in? Well, if you can sum up the whole book of Hebrews into just one word, it would be the word supremacy. Supremacy, that Christ is supreme in all things. He is more supreme than your comforts and your security. He is more supreme than your relationships. He is more supreme than law and traditions. He is more supreme than angels and, and Moses or anything else that Judaism had to offer. Jesus is more supreme than any ruler, emperor, or king. The book of Hebrews communicates that Christ is even more supreme than our lives right now. And it's with this understanding in mind that we need to come to our text. Hebrews 12, 1-3. In Hebrews 12, 1-3, you will find three keys, three keys to living the Christian life so that you will not lose heart or give up. Three keys to living the Christian life so that you will not lose heart or give up. And I apologize, but before we get into that first key, we must look at this connecting word in our text in verse 1, that therefore. We've looked at the general context, now we have to look at the more immediate context. It says in our text, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, stop right there, that therefore talks and points back to what was said previously. And many of us know that Hebrews 11 is known to us as the great hall of faith right? And remember who the intended audience is here. It's the Hebrews. So the writer, in order to motivate and encourage them, gives a list of former Hebrews who have run the race of faith. <coughs> Abel, who lived by faith, right? And Enoch, who lived by faith. And Noah, who lived by faith. 
and Abraham who lived by faith, and Sarah, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and so on, right? They all, like us, were running a race. And in order to be in this race, they all needed to have faith. What is faith? Well, Hebrews 11 verse 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I have always had faith explained to me that that it is trust or faith is object-centered. So what is the object of our faith? Well, our faith is to be rooted and grounded in the promises of the Word of God. And to put it simply, our faith, the object of our faith is Christ. These Old Testament saints, their lives bore witness to true saving faith. It is evident that they believed in the Word of God and the future promises of God. And they are a great encouraging example to us to live by faith as they did, even under difficult and unimaginable circumstances. Hebrews 11, it tells us that they, uh, and, and we know that some of these saints suffered various trials in their life, and yet they still had faith. They were mocked and flogged, imprisoned. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They wore animal skin for clothes. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and yet they still had faith. This is our spiritual heritage. Think of it like a relay race or a baton race, right? They have finished this race and now they are handing the baton to us for us to run. And we are surrounded by so many of these examples of of those who lived for God with their lives by faith. Our text Our text calls it specifically a great cloud or a great throng of people. And Hebrews 11, let's be clear, is not an exhaustive list. There are so many saints in the Old Testament that are not mentioned in chapter 11 that could have been included, just as there are saints today who pass away that could be included in this great hall. We just celebrated on Friday the the life of Mary Foster, a longtime member of JIBC, a woman who lived by faith. And as I went to the the, the funeral on Friday, it was so encouraging to to me. I didn't even know hardly uh, Mary at all. But it was clear and evident that that her life of 94 years bore witness to true saving faith. Again, we are surrounded by so many examples of true saving faith. And it's because of these many examples that we are encouraged and motivated with our first key to running our race. Let's look at our text. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, right, like them, Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The first key to running the race, running with endurance. Running with endurance. Endurance is the idea of being steadfast. To keep going even if everything inside of us wants to slow down or quit. To persevere despite difficult obstacles or unforeseen circumstances in your life. Why is endurance such a key uh, component to running this race that we're in? Well, I think it's because of the nature of the race that we're in, that that, that has been set before us. The word race in in the Greek is the word um, agon. 
and it's where we get the word agony. Um, there are some who run for pleasure, like a Jeff Bentz, um, but this is not the type of run. This is not a fun run. This is not that type of a run. Though there are great enjoyments and pleasures in this life, there are also crushing times as well, times that are difficult, times of great suffering. And though all believers have a course set out for them, we do not choose our course. And some believers have a more difficult uh, uh, set of obstacles than others. But nevertheless, no matter what your obstacles are, endurance is essential for us all. Some of your work environments require much endurance. Some of your financial situations require endurance. Parents raising children, it requires endurance. Amen? Uh, parents who are raising teens, that requires even more endurance. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, teens going through high school, that requires endurance. Band kids getting stuck on a bus because the weather's bad for hours requires endurance. A struggling marriage requires endurance. Getting a difficult health diagnosis, a diagnosis requires endurance. The Hebrew audience facing persecution, that requires endurance. This life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And we must run with this in mind. But also be proactive in our running as the author of Hebrews points out so that we can continue running with endurance. Look at our text. It says, to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. The Hebrew audience would have seen the picture here that was being illustrated to them. Back in ancient Olympic times where people ran, they ran naked. Uh, they ran naked in hopes that nothing would slow them down or get in their way. And even today's racing, uh, the clothing reflects this desire. It tends to be shorter shorts and tighter clothes in order to, to not hinder the runner. And the author of Hebrews first tells us to lay aside every weight, to get rid of the weight. Back to my swimming days, um, I used to swim competitively in high school and in college. And there were days where the coach would have us wear sweatpants and sweatshirts uh, in the water. And we would try to swim, and it all looked like we were drowning. Um, you know, and we weren't. We were really good swimmers, but uh, it looked like we were drowning. It's so heavy. Trying to get out of the pool after practice and, and carry all that weight was nearly impossible. But we were sure to get rid of all that weight when it came to race time. We even shaved our legs and got rid of all the hairs in order to, to get a millisecond faster, right? To get rid of that weight. The same is true here. I don't believe that the weight seen here in our text is, is sinful in and of itself, but rather the author of Hebrews is telling us to cut out anything distracting to us that might take our eyes off of the prize. Think of something like hobbies, for instance. Hobbies, are they a bad thing? No. No, hobbies aren't a bad thing, but when they come, become an all-consuming thing or they begin to divide our attention, that, that can easily become something that weighs us down. Or comforts and entertainment. Take Netflix, for example. Netflix in and of itself may not be sinful. However, binge-watching four seasons in just a few days can become a weight that, 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 that is now a hindrance to our running. Even good things can become a weight because we are so easily distracted as a people. Um, trying to get that eight plus in school or a relationship or being a workaholic. 
If we're not careful, these things can keep us from the most important thing, which is running the race that we've been called to run all for Christ. We can become so easily distracted from running our race because our fleshly desires and everything around us, right? Just consider it. I mean, we live in a world, we live in a world that's, that promotes a life of ease and comfort and entertainment, and our flesh desires it. It craves it. And our hearts can even justify it as if we're entitled to that type of lifestyle. However, that is not primarily what the Bible calls us to. God's Word calls us to action. Christ calls us to suffer for His sake, to, to, to pick up our cross and to, to follow Him. I saw this tweet by someone a few weeks ago quoting Albert Einstein. Bet you didn't think that you would hear a quote by Albert Einstein today. Uh, but the quote is this, a ship is safest in the harbor, but that's not what it's built for. A ship is safest in the harbor, but that's not what it's built for. In a similar way, think of us as Christians. We have not been given newness of life and a new heart and a new nature and the indwelling of the Spirit and spiritual gifts only to sit on the sidelines watching in comfort and ease others running this race. We're called to be His ambassadors, His slaves, His disciples, following Him until we finish that line, across that finish line, until death. Uh, running again, it might not be your thing, but if you have put your faith and trust in the Lord as your, as your, as your Lord and Savior, you are in this race. And there are far too many people claiming to be Christians today who have never started running at all. They are maybe dressed for running. They occasionally stretch for running. But they have not begun to run their race for Christ. And that's not true saving faith. True faith runs. And, and true faith runs enduring to the very end because true faith endures to the very end. And let me be clear. Our endurance does not save us. We cannot save ourselves. But we endure because we are saved. And for those who quit the race and depart uh, from the race are those who have never, I believe, never been saved to begin with. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So in order to run this race, with endurance, we must take off the weight. We have to cut the drag that can so easily weigh us down and hinder us from running this race for Christ. And next, the text calls us to lay aside sin. The threat is not only external, church, but it's also internal as well. Our flesh, if not put into check, can be tempted and fall into various temptations. Proverbs 29, verse 6 says, An evil man is ensnared in his transgression but a righteous man sings and rejoices. Have you ever sinned and had to face the uh, immediate consequences of that sin? It's not fun, is it? Um, it doesn't make life easier. It, it makes it harder. It makes it worse. Wouldn't it help our running to not only put off the things that weigh us down, but also to put away the sins that so easily ensnare us? The Christian life ought to be characterized by putting off sin and putting on Christ, just as Paul talks about in Colossians 3. 
which says, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Paul then goes on to say, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Putting off sin and putting on Christ so that we might not slip up and fall when we are running this race. And so how is this accomplished? Well, number one, it's accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit that's working in us. And also, uh, as (coughs) as well as godly disciplines that we're called to. Godly disciplines such as prayer and scripture reading and service and memorizing scripture, etc. I've heard it been said before, Pastor Andy, I've been doing spiritual disciplines for like a week and a half or two weeks and I'm still sinning and I still feel miserable. But again, we have to remember the need for endurance. We all want immediate growth and success in our life with minimum effort. We just want it to happen. But that's not how life works. One pastor explained it to me this way, and I think I've shared it to you before, but that T plus D equals G. Time plus discipline equals growth. So many of us, you know, for, for many of us, we haven't touched the Bible in a really long time. And at the beginning of this new year, we grab a new Bible reading program, something lofty and high, like the 90-day Bible reading program. We cover the whole Bible in 90 days. And only to find ourselves gasping for air two weeks from now or a month from now, um, wanting to give up. We have to remember it's not a sprint. This isn't some sort of extreme, unrealistic diet plan that you only try every New Year's or when you feel like it. What we're talking about is a lifestyle. Running the race for Christ is a lifestyle that we're called to every day to live for Christ. So the first key to running this race is running with endurance. The next key is found in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, espousing the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The second key has everything to do with our eyes and what we look at in our running. I, I really like the legacy standard Bible translation here of this Greek word. Instead of looking, the word looking to Jesus, it says fixing our eyes on Jesus. That word fixing here in the Greek, it, it means to look away from everything else and to instead have a firmly fixed gaze on one object who in this case is Christ. Because, church, we're not running aimlessly, right? We are running to Christ and we are running for Christ. But because we are so weak and so prone to doubt, we can tend to fix our eyes on ourselves and everything but Christ. And just think of how negatively that impacts our running. 
I think a great way to illustrate that point is through the person of Peter in Matthew 14, 22 through 33. You know, you know that text? You remember that text. That's when Jesus is seen walking on the water and, and his disciples look at Jesus and they think he's a ghost, right? But Jesus calms them down and tells them that, it, that it's him. And in verse 28, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But look, when he saw the wind he was afraid and, began, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. When did Peter start sinking? When he looked away from Jesus. Absolutely. When he looked away from Jesus. And so too, church, will we sink when we take our eyes off of Christ. We are called to fix our eyes solely on Him who is, as it's said in the text, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The word founder in the Greek is a word that means originator. It contrasts with the word perfecter, which can mean finisher. He is the author and completer, the beginner and the, the finisher, the founder and, and, the, and, the, and the perfecter. The writer of Hebrews is meaning to say here that Jesus is the ultimate source of our faith. It means that, that, that it has to mean then that faith does not originate with us. It is as Ephesians 2.8 says, faith is a gift from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And this faith was accomplished through the life of Christ, who when he lived, he lived perfectly, even unto death. And, when you are, and before death, he cried out to his Father, it is finished. And if you have true faith this morning, it is because of Christ. And if your faith finishes its race, it is because of Christ. Because what he starts, he will also complete, just as uh, Philippians 1 6 says. So note this that our victory is sure. Why is our victory sure? Because Jesus was and is victorious. So fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes on his race. Fix your eyes on what he accomplished for you. Verse 2 goes on to say, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at what Jesus endured for us. The cross, the suffering, and the shame, all while anticipating with great joy what was going to come as a result. Jesus knew what the reward was for this great suffering. And that this, this great suffering compared to the eternal weight of glory that was ahead of Him. It's minuscule. And his suffering was great. Church, fix your eyes on Jesus who lovingly and willingly and joyfully did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And what is the result? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the result? Eternal glory and exaltation for Christ who ran his race perfectly for me and for you. And just look at verse 2, the end of verse 2, at Jesus' honored position. And he is seated, the text says, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Being seated at the right hand in this time period was a, was a place of great honor. And there is no greater honor than being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And just as Christ ran with his reward in mind, so too should we. Is this life difficult? It absolutely is. Is there much to endure? Yes. But the prize of finishing should motivate us all the more to continue running. Just as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, if you only anticipate the things in front of you, earthly things, temporal circumstances, then that is what your eyes are fixated on. And this ultimately shows where your heart truly lies, not on Christ, but on the world. And instead, we ought to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, right, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We should be able to join with King David when he writes Psalm 16, uh, one of my favorite psalms, and when he writes, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Everything in me rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David greatly and highly anticipated being with his king one day. Do you anticipate being with Christ in his presence one day where there is fullness of joy forevermore? Because if you do not anticipate this in your future, then your race is in jeopardy. You are not running to Christ but towards destruction Christ for believers, for true uh, believers. Christ is our goal. He is our rightful end. He is the finish line where there are pleasures forevermore. It will be then when our faith is fully realized, when faith is turned to sight, where there is no more death and no more tears, and what a joyous end that will be. Friends, where are your eyes fixated this morning? What are you running toward? Because if it's not Christ, then you need to repent. And you either need to repent and turn to Christ or put your faith this morning in Jesus as your Lord and Savior so that you can join this race that leads to Christ, to eternal life. Because there is no other course uh, that, that leads to eternal life but through Christ. He is the only way. He is the only truth. And He is the only way to life. 
This race requires us to have endurance. It requires us to fix our eyes on Christ. And finally, it requires us to run by Christ's example, which is the third key we see in this text. Remember the example that we started the sermon with, the examples that we're surrounded by, the great cloud of witnesses, those who are no longer running this race because they have crossed the finish line. Though these examples are meant to encourage and motivate us, and they do, the writer of Hebrews, just as he does with uh, much, of the, 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 much of the rest of the epistle, okay, the writer of the Hebrews is sure to point out that the supreme example is Christ. It is His example that we are to imitate. He alone ran His race to perfection. As we've already mentioned, He ran His race with a goal in mind, as should we. He ran with endurance, as should we. He trusted His heavenly Father in every aspect of His life, and as should we. Jesus says in John 5.30, I can do nothing of my own initiative because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And guess what? What was the will of the Father? It was to crush Him. And for Jesus, who is both totally man and totally God, to experience shame on, on our behalf because of us, just think about it for a second. It is, it's, it's really hard to fathom crucifixion, right? Crucifixion was such a shameful form of execution that it was forbidden, it forbidden to inflict on Roman citizens. The Roman government didn't want their people to, to face that much shame. So they forbid that it happen to Roman citizens. Even the Jews knew the shame that would come from dying on a tree. Uh, as is recorded from us, uh, for us in Galatians 3.13, uh, a quote from Deuteronomy that says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Crucifixion was performed typically naked in public. It was a punishment of prolonged pain, and it was intended to cause shame for hours and hours until death. However, Jesus despised. He scorned the shame, thinking so little of it. Why? Because it was His Father's will for Him. Wow. How much more then should we, when facing trials, seek to submit to the Father's will for our lives, especially when we face suffering. Look at verse 3 with me in our text. If we, uh, the first word that we see there is the word consider. It's where we get the word logarithm. It's a word that means to calculate. Verse 3 reads, Consider him, or calculate him, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. When we look to Christ's example and the race that he ran for us and we calculate it, we will find that, that, that we will never see any race that could compare to his race. His suffering is supreme just like his example to us is supreme. And there is no greater suffering and no tougher race than that, that could compare to Christ. And when we understand that Christ is both fully man and fully God, that, that when we understand that he's perfectly holy, and that he was supposed by sinners like us, the humility it took for him to submit to his Father's will in order to be killed by sinful man. The amount of grace and love that was demonstrated toward us, it, it's hard to comprehend. 
And don't forget about the intended, the, the original audience here. The Hebrews that this book was written to. Those who are facing a very real pressure and a very real persecution. Those who, again, could have struggled with the idea of, of giving up their race for Christ. Dropping out of the race. Think of how timely this epistle would have been. Before God... And because of our sin, we are all deserving of God's wrath. We face trials because of the sinfulness of man. We do. But Jesus, He was sinless. He did not sin. He was not deserving of any hostility at all. But for you and for me, He joyfully, joyfully laid down His life so that if you would put your trust in Him and in His sacrifice, that you can have everlasting life. You may have much to endure in this race, many trials, many struggles, but fix your eyes on Christ who is our example, who, who faced trials and suffering too great for us to, to understand. And it is Christ in spite of such sufferings that gave himself completely for you. Remember that and never forget that as long as you run this race, that, that, that the love that Christ had for you and for me. And when we run with endurance, fixing our eyes on Christ, imitating our example who is Christ, we will not grow weary or become faint-hearted. That is to say that we will not lose heart or give up. Not knowing what tomorrow holds <coughs> or what 2023 holds, this ought to be a text, this passage ought to be a text that we hold on to every day throughout the year so that we would run well for Christ. Not turning back to the old manner of life, or the, but, but, but rather pressing on towards the goal, towards the prize that's promised us. I heard a, a, pa a pastor share this, this story of a great one-mile race that took place in 1954 a couple years before I was alive. And the two notable runners competing in this race were John Landy and Roger Bannister. And this race was to be one of the earliest televised events recorded in history. And going into the race, everyone knew that Landy was the faster runner than Bannister. Everyone was picking Landy to win. And Landy led most of the race as was expected. He was running aggressively and some might even say arrogantly while Bannister ran with pace and patience and in the last lap Bannister began to close the gap between him and Landy rounding the final turn Landy made a huge mistake I'm not a much of a runner and I don't know the rules of running but I know you don't do this okay Landy made a huge mistake of peeking over his left shoulder to see where Bannister was. But Bannister was on his right, and as Landy's head was turned, Bannister stormed by him and beat him by a second. Church, the worst thing to do when it comes to the Christian race is to look anywhere other than Christ. To, to look to others or to your former manner of life, it can be so destructive Church, fix your eyes on Christ who is our Lord and Savior, our example that we must consider so that we can run this agonizing race with endurance and perseverance all for His glory. Let's pray. Father, <coughs>
Help us consider our calling that you've called us to, this, this great race we get to run for you. Help us to run this race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Christ, who is our example to follow. And help us to never lose heart or give up, but to forever put our trust in you until the race is finished. May we run hard, laying aside every weight and sin that so easily can trip us up and help us to run sold out for you so that one day when we cross that finish line, we could hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you, Christ, for joyously running this race for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.